I'm going to start with a joke, which I realize puts some pressure on. I seldom, uh, usually when I try to be funny, I don't identify it as a joke because I think it's funnier that way. Uh, when I say, here comes a joke, then that's like, you know, we'll be the judge of that, right? Um, but, but, but this is, <laughs> this is an old story, and I've told it before, and uh, I just think it's funny, and it applies to today's message. So the setting of the story is at a monastery, and the hero of our story is a young monk who goes into a monastery, and like many medieval monasteries, they took a vow of, of poverty and chastity, but this one also took a vow of silence. And so the rules at the monastery was you had to, you had to be there 10 years before you got to say anything, and then you got to say two words. So at the end of 10 years of service, the young monk was called into the abbot's office, the director of the monastery, and the abbot says, congratulations, you've served 10 years here, and now you get to, uh, to say two words. What would you like to say? And the young monk says, bed hard. The abbot says, okay, those are your two words. I'll see you 10 years from now. And so the, uh, the monk goes back about his work, and he... Uh, he serves faithfully 10 more years, doing menial tasks at the monastery. At the, at the end of 10 more years, he's served there 20 years. The abbot calls him back into the office. Congratulations, 20 years of service. You get to say two more words. What would you like to say? And the monk says, soup cold. The abbot says, all right, thanks for sharing. And uh, the, uh, the monk goes back to work, serves 10 more years. He's served there 30 years now, and the abbot calls him back in says, congratulations, you get to say two more words. What would you like to say? And the monk says, I quit. He grabbed his bag and he walked out. And the abbot turned to his assistant and he said, yeah, I'm really not surprised. He's done nothing but complain since he got here. <laughs> so uh, to, to me, that's a, a moderately funny old joke. <clears throat> And, but it illustrates the point that I want to make today. We're going to talk about solitude, and very closely connected with solitude is the discipline of silence, knowing when to speak, knowing when not to speak. And there's a message there about the volume of our words, but the more important message is about the quality, the content of our words. And I think we can get this a little more clearly if we understand, we go back and ask ourselves, what are our words for? As free Americans in the 21st century, I think we have a little harder time grasping this than other cultures throughout history, because it's, it's a constitutionally preserved right that we get to talk. It's, you know, First Amendment. The freedom of speech is one of our dearest treasured rights as, a, as American citizens, and yet the Bible would limit that some. And so what are words for? Are they to publish your opinions? Are they to, to justify your actions? Sometimes I use them that way. I, you know, try to explain myself and defend myself. Uh, oftentimes we use words to manipulate others. Uh, I was, uh, Gene and I were having a little discussion yesterday. It wasn't so much an argument, it was a good-natured uh, exchange. Uh, it wasn't uh, hostile enough to be argumentative, but I told her, you know, Gina, I don't want to manipulate you. I just want you to do what I want. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, I was, I was, of course, making a joke, but uh, we oftentimes use words that way. Bullies or verbally abusive people will use words to try to scare people into doing what they want. Or we can go the other direction where people will be obsequious and ingratiating, trying to get people to feel sorry for them or like them better to do what they want. But either way, it's, good, it's a control thing. The Bible makes it plain that the purpose of words is just one, there's one valid purpose for words, and that is to bless others. And by that standard, we all fall short. And yet by that standard, even though it's a strict and harsh standard, the cool thing is it's real easy to measure. 
I don't get confused about those words I just said. Was anybody blessed by those? If it's, it's real easy to figure that out. Proverbs 10, 19 when, says, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. This verse is, a, is one of those verses that you, you ever had a verse just come up again and again in your life? This is one for us, and, and I can remember my daughter turned 26 on Thursday, which shocks me, makes me feel ancient, but uh, um, I can remember when she was in ninth grade, I think, uh, we were doing this thing where our, uh, um, she would have been in nine, so Andrew would have been in elementary school, uh, where we would read a proverb a day. Since there are 31 proverbs, someone taught us that it would be good to read one a day. And so we were going through reading a proverb a day for a while. And when we got to Proverbs 10, we read this one. When words are many, sin is not absent. And Allison, as a ninth grade girl, you know, wanted to speak up for her whole tribe and said, wait a second, does that mean it's a sin to talk too much? Because, uh, uh, you know, talking was a key part of her life and uh, at that point. And so she was kind of alarmed by this. And I wasn't exactly sure what it meant, but I thought that it meant, and I tried to explain to her, I don't think it's just the volume of words that make us sinners. It's that the more we say, the more likely we are to say things that are inappropriate. And the funny thing about that is I cannot tell you how many times, it's countless, the times where, where Allison and I, e even this year, we've had episodes where I would say something I wish I hadn't said or she would say something she wishes she hadn't said. Or we've observed a situation where somebody just goes too far or doesn't put the bridle on soon enough and she'll kind of look at me with a knowing look and just say, you know, her words are many. And this verse has come up to us again and again. I can remember a scene in Guatemala where, where you know, a kid just cheerfully trying to show off how much Spanish she knew used, used it wrongly and hurt a guy's feelings and he was just wounded by those words. And it was nothing she intended, it was just careless speech. And Allison looks over at me and says, you know, words are many. Uh, and so we've seen that in our own lives a number of times. It's, it's come up again and again. But here's the standard. It's found in Ephesians 4.29. Paul says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for, helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And you might think of unwholesome talk as like you know, inappropriate language, and I suppose it could mean that. But I think it's more... I think what Paul's going at is, is the impact on the listener. Uh, does it build others up? Is it helpful? And that, again, I think is a rather tight standard. I'm, I'm glad this isn't, the, this isn't the way to salvation, because who would make it? But it's a, it's a measure for disciples on whether or not we're using our words appropriately. And so once I've spoken, even though it's a harsh standard, it seems, it's a very, very easy to measure standard. You know, was that thing I said useful? Was it helpful? Did it build others up? Did it bless? That's the, that's the biblical purpose for our words. And so I, I think you realize that uh, we're on a series here. And for those of you that are new, I just want to welcome you. Um, you're always welcome to join in. We're, we're at the halfway point of a 12-week series, but each message, I hope, stands alone. But if you, if you want to catch up, uh, we now have podcasts and we have CDs. And so uh, you, it's always possible to catch up, and we're going to go six... Um, if you've been enjoying this series, we've got six more weeks of it. If you've only been enduring it, you'll have only six more weeks of it, and then we'll move on to something else. So uh, uh, we're, we're going through a book called Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth, and it's by Richard Foster. And we've been going chapter by chapter through 12 classic spiritual disciplines. 
And I feel like that this is not a way to salvation, but a way to spiritual fitness for us to be healthier, more, more useful servants in the kingdom of God. Uh, the first four were inward disciplines, and we studied those last month, meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. We're in the middle of the second sub-series, the outward disciplines, simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. And these seem very medieval to me, like things you could practice at a monastery. Um, and then next month, on into December, we'll look at the corporate disciplines, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. Today, it's all about solitude, very closely connected to silence. And that's why I started talking about words. Solitude's often confused for loneliness, but it's not at all the same. Loneliness it brings inner emptiness, but solitude is a way to inner fulfillment. And, and it's not just about being alone, but it's how you spend that alone time. And this is something that we can see if we look at the life of Jesus, and we believe that, you know, I believe, and I think the Bible teaches, and the early church believed, that it's not just the words of Jesus, but also the life of Jesus that are instructive to us. What would Jesus do? He would seek solitude. Uh, I put a bunch of verses up. Uh, let's take a quick look. We'll take a little tour through the life of Christ and see how he sought solitude. In fact, you'll see that alone times with God in prayer bookended the, ministry, the public ministry of Jesus. Before he launched his public ministry in Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Kind of an alarming passage. Led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now that's, a, that's kind of a shocking thing to chew on. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but the point is Jesus spent time alone, 40 days of it, before he started his public ministry. Luke 6, 12 through 13. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Before he chose his 12 disciples, he spent the night alone in prayer. Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. What had happened was John the Baptist got beheaded, and so he, he mourned in using solitude. Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary, solitary place where he prayed. And the Gospels make it plain that this was a habit of Jesus. Mark 6, 31, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. The cool thing this teaches is I think it's possible to seek solitude even if you're not totally alone. Uh, I think as a couple, it's possible to seek solitude. There, there have been a couple of uh, uh, real busy times in our lives where... Uh, the kids will ask us where we're going or what, you, what are your plans for this weekend? And the answer will be something like, not exactly sure where we're going, but I'm sure there's only room for two. Um, and Gene and I will go off and, 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 be, and be by ourselves because we just need that. And, I, and you know, after 26 years, we reach a level of comfort where I can be recharged and feel like there, you know, there aren't demands on my time or my schedule or even my words. And we could be quiet together and enjoy that time. And... Uh, in Luke 5, it says this, Luke 5:15. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So this makes it plain that this was his habit. And then at the end of his public ministry, Matthew 26, the night before he was crucified, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, in the Middle Ages... There were, there were groups of monks who were so excited about this idea of solitude 
that they took it to its logical extreme and they became hermits. And they felt like I'm going to live completely solitary, lonely lives with just me and God and no other community. And yet, I tend to believe that that's letting the pendulum swing too far the other way. I don't think it's healthy for us to always have to have a buzz of activity around us, but if we don't have any action, interaction with other people, I feel like we miss an opportunity to be useful. What's the model of Jesus? Did Jesus spend time in community, loving and serving others? Absolutely. Did he routinely make time for himself to go to be alone and pray? Absolutely, he did that too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, let him who cannot be alone beware of community, and let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings, and one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Solitude is very closely related to silence, because I find that in my life, the noise that interrupts my thoughts most often is the sound of my own words, because uh, there's just so much chatter going on, and oftentimes I'm, I'm a key player, obviously. I, I live a life where there are a lot of words flowing, and a lot of them are coming out of me. Uh, there's an old saying, I don't know who said this, it says, all who open their mouths close their eyes. And so the problem with talking all the time is that it, it, it infects, invades our ability to listen. And the New Testament reading that we did this morning was on James chapter 3. And uh, just if I can give a little plug for the Wednesday night service, David Bumstead did a fantastic teaching on James chapter 3 week before last. In fact, I've got a handout I've been meaning to copy and give out to you. Connect, he connects the book of James to the Gospels. And uh, uh, some have questioned its connection because of its emphasis on works. But you can see parallels between the life of Jesus and the words of James. And uh, uh, feel free to nag me about that until I make the copies and make them available for you back there because I've intended to do it for the last two weeks and just forgot to. But let's take another look at what James said. This is from chapter 3. I'm going to start with verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no, one, no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So the metaphors that James uses for the tongue are bridle, rudder, and fire. And all, all of those are small but control big things. And the point is that even though our tongue, uh, the words we use are a small part of our personality, our whole, our, where our tongue goes, where our words go, our heart follows and our feet follow. And that's the, that's the plain message. Just like a rudder controls a ship, your words will determine the course of your life. And because of that, some are tempted to just go too far and just say, well, I'm not going to say anything then. Thomas Akempis said, uh, he's a medieval monk, he said, it's easier to be silent altogether than to speak with moderation. And yet, I don't think total silence is possible. I don't think it's feasible. I don't think it's even preferable. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.7 says there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. And obviously, if you look at my life, I'm not going to stand in front of you and say, don't talk at all. You know, it'd be better not to talk. I mean, five days a week, 
six classes a day, students walk into my room and sit there, and I'm supposed to talk. And, and, and I couldn't get very well get my job done silently. And, and every Sunday, I stand in front of you and talk, not just once, but twice. And so obviously, I believe that there's an appropriate time to use words. It would be absurd for me to say not. This is what I'm going for. Proverbs 25:11 says, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And that's, that's what I want, a nice little creative word picture for how valuable, appropriate words can be. And that's what I want to give you. I want to give you a word aptly spoken. Ecclesiastes 5 has a, a kind of a, a curious and funny warning for people coming to church. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know when they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. So a, I think a very vivid phrase to describe someone who talks too much in church, offering the sacrifice of fools. I don't want to do that. Richard Foster, the guy whose book I'm reading, offers two metaphors for the tongue that I think are very appropriate. He says the tongue is a thermometer and it's also a thermostat. I'd like to explore that a little bit. It's a thermometer in that it shows your temperature. It shows the things we say show what's going on in our heart. Jesus said this. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the things that, the things that we say reveal what's going on inside. And that one's kind of obvious. I think we all could have figured that one out. But the cool thing that James teaches and that, that, that Foster captured is that the tongue is also a thermostat. It doesn't just reveal what's going on, but it determines the direction. You know, we go over to the thermostat and we change the temperature and it's gonna change. Our words can change our direction. They change our hearts first and then our, our actions follow. Um, I'll give an example of that from, from my own life, from our own marriage. When Jean and I were newlyweds, we lived in Columbia, South Carolina, and we attended uh, the First Baptist Church there, one of these 20,000 people church. And our young adult, young married Sunday school class was about the size of this church. Um, and the pastor's wife taught the Sunday school lesson. And I can remember, we'd only been married a couple months when she taught us this, this message. And, and, and we both just chewed on this and in so many ways have tried to live it for, for the last couple of decades. She said, most people want to feel their way into action. You know, this is how I feel, and so therefore that's how I'm going to act. And she said, that's a risky thing for a marriage. She said, what would be better is for you to act your way into a new way of feeling and decide this is the right way to act, and I'm going to act the right way. And, and then the really cool thing that she kind of assured us of that seemed dubious to me then, but I've kind of tested it and seen that, it, that it's true, is the feelings follow the actions. When we choose the right actions, then our spouses respond to us differently, we feel differently about our environment. And, and what I found is that when I let my feelings drive the bus, I'm in for a rocky ride all over the place. But when I let my actions or my commitments drive the bus, then the feelings get to follow for a very nice ride. And, and here's how it happens in my, it's kind of a family joke that I'll, I'll respond with enthusiastic words even when they don't really call, the situation doesn't really call for enthusiastic words. I'll try to give an example. Like, if someone asks me to do something, and I know it's the right thing to do, and so I know I'm going to do it anyway, instead of just saying, okay, it's the right thing to do, so I'm, I'm going to do it, I'll respond more, more like, like, I'll be glad to do that, in a very enthusiastic and cheerful way. And the, the, the joke of it is, sometimes I'll say that when it's obvious that any 
normal person or regular sane person would not be all that enthusiastic about it. And yet officially, I do want to do the right thing. And I am glad to do the right thing. I want to choose that. And yet sometimes I recognize that my words go ahead of how, how my heart feels down deep. And so for me, it's almost like I'm taking baby steps. It's like, okay, someone asked me to do something. I know it's the right thing to do. But, but if I've tried to train myself to respond enthusiastically with my words. Yes, I'll be glad to do that. And it's almost like I'm playing the part of somebody who would like to do that. I'm, I'm in a role. And it's not just like that I live a phony life. What I found is at the end of the day, I really was glad to do that. And, and that instead of letting my feelings, especially my selfish feelings, drive the bus, I've, I've tried to train my words or allow my words to sort of lead the way and my actions, and I've found that it, it works. That where my, words, where my words go, my heart follows and my feet follow. And guess what? The feelings that follow that are, are often very good as well. Uh, when most many of you know the, the, the feeling of feeling obliged to do something, not being all that excited about it, choosing to do it because it was the right thing to do, and at the end feeling very satisfied for what you've done. Well, it works better if you don't talk against it on the way. That's the, if, if you don't go into it kicking and screaming, uh, if you go into it with, with positive words. That's, that's what I've found. So, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, real silence, real stillness, really holding one's tongue comes only as the sober consequences of spiritual stillness. And so I want to shift gears here and point out that if you embrace this discipline of solitude, there will be one, uh, I, I guarantee you, some season of your life, you'll go through what feels like a dry and empty spell. And like most Americans addicted to entertainment, you're going to be, your first reaction is to be a, a desperation to escape. Um, there was a, a, a Catholic uh, sort of counter-reformation theologian who called himself St. John of the Cross. He wrote a poem, Spanish, it's one of the best poems ever written in the Spanish language, they say, called The Dark Night of the Soul. And, and he coined that phrase to refer to this sort of dry and empty place. And if you're in that place, that's when you find that just, even though you're still trying to do it right, you're just bored with the messages, the music is leaving you cold, the worship service is dull, and oftentimes we find ourselves often just desperate for a new experience, a new spiritual high, uh, maybe a new church. Now sometimes it's easy to, to see the source of that. You know, there's a sin in my life that's a barrier between me and fellowship with God. But other times you might be trying to do it right and just find yourself in a dry and empty place. And what Foster's saying and what, what St. John of the Cross said is that that's sometimes a season that the Holy Spirit takes you through to sort of empty you from all the trappings and just leave you alone with God. And, and Isaiah wrote about this in chapter 50. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light, yet trusts in the name of the Lord and relies upon his God? And, and to me, the encouragement there is that there's blessing for faithfulness even when you're not feeling it. And when you go through those dark and dry times, will you still cry out to God for deliverance? Will you still trust God? For, for, for your sustenance. Here's the way uh, the, the guy who coined the phrase used uh, referred to it. St. John of, of the Cross says, Oh, then, spiritual soul. I guess I should tell a little bit about him. I read about him this week. 
after the Reformation, the Catholic Church was a little bit on the defensive, and and some responded. The, the official Catholic Church just reaffirmed all their traditional doctrines and said, no, "We're right. You guys are all wrong. You Protestants." But there were some Catholics who who drove themselves deeper into relationship with God. Saint Teresa of Avila was one of those, and they, I think legitimately and and with every good intention pursued a closer relationship with God in an attempt to to sort of recapture the the things that were fundamentally good about their faith and I think this guy was one of those uh, he said oh then spiritual soul when you see your appetites darkened your inclinations dry and constrained your faculties incapacitated for any interior exercise do not be afflicted think of this as a grace since God is freeing you from yourself and taking from you your own activity. I think that's kind of challenging to do, but next time you're in sort of those dark places, just ask the Holy Spirit what he's trying to show you. So what's the application for this today? Are we just supposed to kind of put a little word meter on ourselves and try to talk less this week? Um, I'm not really suggesting that. I'm going to actually suggest two ways to practically apply today's message. One is what I would call the baby steps, and the other is a little more advanced. First of all, take advantage of the little solitudes of your day. if you're the first person up at your house, then that's, that's an, an opportunity for one of those. Uh, the, the morning coffee time is that for me. Uh, Gina says when, when she's jogging uh, is a time uh, where she feels alone and, and very much um, uh, has an opportunity to pray. When we walk, we walk together, and we talk to each other the whole time. When we jog, I can't keep up with her. And so she's totally alone, and I'm totally alone. And that's an opportunity for us to pray. Um, Find or develop a quiet place in your home. You know, we spend a lot of energy and money making this room just right or that room just right. Is there a place in your house that's a, that's a, a, a quiet place? A, a place for, for me, my favorite place is the back porch. Uh, usually nobody else is out there. My favorite place for solitude is the back porch. There's nobody else out there. I've heard Rick use the phrase prayer closet. It could be a place that's more like a closet. But uh, maybe it's worth doing. Find an outside place, a quiet place outside your home. We live in a place that's a, a, a county that's perfect for that. You know, 11 and a half months out of the year, it's, it's safe and comfortable to be outside. You know, the beach is a beautiful place for that. It's not that lonely at the beach. There are usually lots of people there, but not if you go at the right time. Uh, we have a lot of green spaces around here. Uh, one of my favorite places very close to here is Turkey Creek. And what is Turkey Creek? It's not Turkey Creek Park. It's Turkey Creek what? Sanctuary, and I think there's a lot in that. Uh, they, you know, I know it was intended to be a sanctuary for the animals, but I think the humans who go there can find some sanctuary. Discipline yourself, and this is the hardest part, so that your words are full and few. You know, we want like apples of, of gold. And then advanced steps. Have you ever tried to live a day without words, or even half a day? Now, be careful with this. You don't want to offend people. You don't want to be rude. You should warn your spouse if you're going to try this. Uh, you know, we don't just, they might just think they're getting the silent treatment uh, uh, and, and spend the day trying to figure out what went wrong. And regularly I encourage you to, to, um, to try to build some kind of retreat setting into your life. Uh, this is something, um, well, well monthly, try to spend a day or a half day where it's just you talking to God about what you, what, you know, the course of your life, setting goals, re-examining goals. Um, quarterly. When Gene and I were first married, we had this great deal where our both, both sets of grandparents lived within an hour of us, and we would routinely leave the kids with them and try to get away. And a lot of parents feel false guilt over that, but I want to encourage you 
not only do you need a break from your kids, but your kids need a break from you. And your marriage will be stronger if you, if you develop this. And we found our marriage was stronger, our relationship with our kids was better, and also we, we were very appreciative of the grandparents for making that happen. So it was, it was kind of win-win all around. Yearly, I encourage you to take some time to sort of re-examine your life. Uh, the elders of this church go off once a year, and we sort of look at where we've been and look at where we're going. And I think that's, that's coming up next month. You can pray for us. I think it's a very appropriate thing to do. Foster says most people overestimate what can be done in a year and underestimate what can be done in five years. And if you look at the life of this church, I think you'll find that to be very much true. I made the comment that it would be fun and easy to plan a church the day we plan it, which is you know, kind of a, a recurring joke for us. Um, it's not, it wasn't all as easy as we thought it was going to be, but it, it has been very fulfilling and yet six years later, look what God's done. He did more than we could have dreamed or we could have imagined that he would do. The fruit of solitude, if you practice it, is that you'll find yourselves more sensitive to others and more compassionate for others. Thomas Merton said it this way, it is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are, not for what they say. Let's pray. Lord, help us to spend time alone with you so that we'll be better company for the people around us when we're spending time with them. Lord, help us to, uh, uh, to discipline ourselves to, to, to being more careful with our words, to never utter words that are going to hurt or wound. Lord, help us to use the words that will be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.